We take made up numbers about what it's going to cost to run a business. We take made up numbers about what we're going to achieve. And then we make up a number of how much money it's going to take to get all of those things to happen. And then we present it to a stranger and say, hey, stranger, give me all your money, please. Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora, I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of the Investment Team at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Today on the Investment Fix, we're talking international venture capital. And here with me are Laura Bell, founder and CEO of cybersecurity training company SafeStack, and Andrea Gardner, founder and CEO of Australian VC firm Glex Ventures. SafeStack raised $2.3 million of seed funding in a deal led by Glex in October 2021. And Andrea is now one of SafeStack's non-executive directors. I'm very excited about the conversation to come. Welcome, Laura. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dylan. It's great. Fantastic. Now, Laura, I'm going to kick off with you. Can you give us a bit of an introduction into SafeStack? What's it all about and what does it offer businesses? SafeStack is a cybersecurity product company specifically in the edtech space. So we are a community-centric online education platform that aims to give software developers, testers, analysts, and architects all of the skills they need to weave security through everything they do. So from having a great idea, I'm going to build a thing, right the way through looking after that for its course of its life, it's introducing security to every part of that life cycle. We do that around the world in seven countries with 9,200 learners as of yesterday today and 83 customers. It's on a big mission to basically democratize or share responsibility for application security with the people who are building their systems, the people best equipped to protect them. So rather than fishing for them, you're teaching them to fish themselves? Something like that. If you think about software development, you have a lot to manage already. We call them the illities, but it seems like my software needs to be scalable and it needs to be observable and I need to be able to make sure it actually does the job and it needs to be usable. Now, security should be part of that mix, but because security wasn't something that we really thought of in the early days of software, it never really made it in. So we're trying to address that and put security in the mix with all of the other challenges our teams are already solving. So you made a pretty big pivot when COVID hit. Can you tell us a bit about the creation of the SafeStack Academy? And what did you grapple with as you shifted from, I guess, a services business to a product business? Sure. I know every founder loves to have that story where, well, I had the perfect business plan and I executed it in perfect fashion and I was under budget and I overachieved. But that's not what happened. We were a services company. We were a consultancy and we were a very good one. And we started seven years ago. We led the way for how fast-paced organizations do security. And we did that in many countries. Initially as consultants, later we trained people to do it ourselves. And on the way, I wrote a couple of books. But in 2020, COVID hit. And when you work with high growth companies as your core audience, high growth companies, when a pandemic hits, do exactly what they should do at that point. And they're like turtles. They put their head inside and they protect themselves. And that's exactly what they should have done. So at that point, there were four of us, all women, mostly with kids. And we dropped 94% of our revenue. So we had probably the most awkward, intense Zoom chat of our company's history where we were like, well, what do we do? We can lay down and die, for want of a better word. Or we've been toying around with the idea that 
what we did shouldn't just be available to people with big pockets or it shouldn't require a consultant. We should be able to do it for a wider audience. So in April 2020, we said, right, we'll build a product. And in July 2020, we launched it. And in October, it, our second product came in, which was our secure development offering, having initially led with the simpler awareness piece. And yeah, that was about 18 months or so ago now. We're now 20 people and we've gone through one heck of a transformation. There's no services in our business anymore. We are entirely a platform company and we're now able to reach many more organizations than we've ever been able to and are changing the way that we do fast-paced application security in companies that absolutely would not have engaged with security before. Andrea, you lead SafeStack seed funding round in October 2021 and we'll talk in a bit more detail about the round soon, but... Can you first just tell us about how did you and Laura meet and what was it that attracted you to SafeStack? I think it was New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, actually, because we have a very strong relationship with Amit, who works for New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, and he's based here in Sydney. He's done an extraordinary job of building incredibly strong and really extensive relationships with VCs in Australia. So we know him particularly well. You guys also sponsor the Innovation Bay Venture Capital Group, Aurora. That's been really a big part of it too. So Emmett, he's a great source of New Zealand deal flow for us. He introduced us, I think, didn't he, Laura? Anything Emmett introduces to us, then we have a really close look at. Andrea is always going to have a fond place in my first raise for our first meeting, which I think was scheduled to be 25 minutes as we're always ruthlessly efficient with those initial chats. We spoke for over an hour. We decided at the end of it that it would have been a very easy dinner conversation, that it was just a very natural connection that we made in that first chat, just digging into the business and about me and about Gilex and Andrea. And even from those initial chats, a very strong connection and just very like-minded people connecting. Yeah, and actually that's interesting because usually before I meet the startups, they're pretty vetted. And if I'm interested, then I'll spend an hour or more getting to know the person because first and foremost, we're backing the founder before anything else. And so that's one of the things that's really important to me. And I suppose one of the litmus tests for both, I think it should be for the founders and the investor, is recognising that these early investor-founder relationships, they last longer than most marriages. So you've got to be really careful who you get into bed with. And at minimum, if you want to like the person, you're going to have a long relationship with them. And that means you've got to suss out values. Do, do we share similar values? That, to me, is actually very important. Are we going to enjoy working with them? And do we really think that we can build a relationship with this person that is mutually trusting that when the shit hits the fan, and it inevitably does with startups, it's a big roller coaster, that we'll be the first people you'll call because you absolutely trust that we'll roll up our sleeves and do the best we can to help. And that's the kind of relationship you're looking to be able to develop. You're so popular at Julix. Everyone loves you. The pressure. Well, look, you're exactly what we look for in a founder. You have this deep, deep domain expertise. You're incredibly well organized and focused and you're a tremendously methodical thinker and you plan really well. Your approach to everything is just professional excellence all over it. And every single interaction with you has been an absolute delight. And I suppose that's one of the advice things I would put out there. Your first contact with a potential investor that's when the due diligence starts. 
So you're selling yourself from then and you need to convince them that you have good manners. You say what you do when you say you're going to do it. You know, you respond and just all those things that are just polite and decent behaviours and, oh, my God, you're platinum stars all across the board. It's a good job this is just audio because I'm blushing horribly. Look, you can see why we're huge fans of Laura and what we're looking at when we're investing, it's the quality of the founder. What we're looking for is some of the things I just talked about, but we're also looking for a really voracious appetite to learn, not just formidable intellectual firepower and the capacity to learn, but a genuine appetite to learn because with deep domain expertise, and we're often investing in founders with deep domain expertise, They often don't have a lot of experience and quite often none in actually commercialising their technology. So it's going to be a really steep learning curve and they've got to be someone that enjoys learning. But more importantly, is devoid of some of those emotional impediments to learning like ego and needing to come across as if they know everything. We look for founders that are going to be able to recognise early on, this is the stuff I'm weakest at, this is what I'm going to backfill with someone who's really excellent at it and build a really excellent team around them that are much, much better than they are at a lot of things. That's the kind of founder stuff. Do you want me to go on? (laughs) I was going to flip the question, actually. I was going to throw it back at you, Laura. You've said previously that finding investors that are aligned with your approach is just as important as money. So can you tell us a bit about what attracted you to Gelix and your fit there and the relationship that you built? I'm going to speak really honestly because I think for the audience here, that's really important. My first pitch to a group of people was on the 14th of April, 2021. I felt like a fish out of water. I'd met a lot of founders and I'd watched a lot of pitches and pitch events. What I saw was a very curated view of an individual. The Silicon Valley uniform of a T-shirt and jeans and a pair of Converse. And the whole thing was really clean, for want of a better word. I've never been that person. I'm 38. I am many things. I am a leader. I'm an educator. I'm an author. I'm a mother. I'm a chaotic mess on a Tuesday sometimes. And when I was looking for investors, I wasn't looking for an investor that wanted me to be a caricature of Steve Jobs or to be the clean, pristine image that you see on the stock imagery of what is a CEO. Absolutely. I get this job done in the same way, but the way I build my company, the way I interact, the way I communicate is authentic to who I am. It's a lot of effort to pretend to be somebody you're not. I think Kurt Vonnegut once said, be careful who you pretend to be because it's who you become, to really badly paraphrase him. And I think that's true. I don't want to waste my effort pretending to be a leader I'm not. And so I don't want investors to be looking for that either. I wanted to connect as I was, because I figure at my best and at my worst, that's what they're going to see. I was looking for people who weren't looking for what we read about in textbooks, because that allows for a much more meaningful and honest conversation. And that doesn't waste anyone's time and energy. SafeStack appears quite unique on the face, but particularly in the cybersecurity space, because not only does it have this kick-ass female founder that we've just talked about, But I understand 65% of the team are female and the entire board. Does gender play a role in your decision-making? I think that's a good question. It does and it doesn't. A lot of women founders do find it harder than male founders to raise capital. So that creates an opportunity for us because, to me, women founders lack some of those emotional impediments to learning like ego and thinking they know it all. This is an overgeneralisation. I acknowledge that. It's not always the case. But we just see it as a really big opportunity and we love backing great women founders 
In terms of how big a role does gender play, we wouldn't invest in a company because it was female-led. We just wouldn't do that. We have the same criteria irrespective of gender and diversity, but we do like to see diversity. And by that, I'm not talking only about gender. I'm talking about diversity of experience and backgrounds because it leads to good decision-making. It's really interesting being a female founder in security. There aren't many of us. Though there are some. So Rachel Grease, for example, of Castle Point Systems out of Australia, there are a growing number of female founders in the security space. But it's a very busy industry. There are 3,000 product companies in security right now globally. And when there's you know less than a handful of female founders in a very, very busy marketplace, it can be easy to be overlooked, especially as in my experience, and it's only my experience, we often just don't naturally have the same connections because we haven't had the same opportunities or experiences. We've come from different paths. For me, gender, it is just who you are. It doesn't make you better, it doesn't make you worse, but it can lead to differences into your approach and how assertive you need to be to compensate for things that you just haven't naturally been exposed to. And I think one of the things we're doing really, really well in New Zealand is supporting female founders to create those networks and those connections that don't naturally exist for them. And that makes all the difference when we try and raise funding. I guess we're just talking about this great dynamic of the relationship and you've both related to how you like each other as a person, and that's really important. But I think the interesting dynamic for me is that, Laura, you're sitting here in New Zealand and Andrea, you're sitting over there in Australia and we've had limited movement across borders for the past wee while. So how have you gone and built this relationship? We still haven't met face-to-face in person. It hasn't worked out yet. I have not met 70% of the investors. I think I've only met really two of them in person, and that really wasn't involved in the race. That was before the race. It's been its own thing. I think, just speaking for myself, I'd love to hear Andrea's side of this. Going into this, I was really nervous not being able to go face-to-face and actually, you know, break bread with people was going to get in the way of raising. And I'm building a global business. For me, raising wasn't about just getting New Zealand money, though we wanted and absolutely fought for having New Zealand investors in the mix. But the statement it made that we were a global business seeking global funding to support our global expansion. I think we've been lucky in a way, and the silver lining of a pandemic is that we were all forced to embrace video chat and to learn how to create relationships without the face-to-face part. So for me, that has been a blessing in disguise that we've been in the situation able to do it. And I think all of our investors, Andrea leading the charge on this, have been really great. There doesn't feel like there's been much lost by it being virtual, though I still do look forward to going out to dinner at some point. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with Laura Moore. I swore that I would never in a million years even consider investing in someone that I hadn't met face-to-face. COVID changed all that and it was actually quite liberating in lots of ways because we learned to build relationships over Zoom. I remember early on the idea of being on Zoom was terrifying. You felt like you had to dress up and put your face on and all that sort of stuff. All the people I knew that used to wear suits, they were wearing T-shirts at home on Zoom by the, you know, a year into COVID. And I think Zoom's been an amazing tool because it enabled us to get to know Laura. And I think we must have done maybe 20 investments now without meeting the founders. We've met a lot of them subsequently. So Zoom's been a boon for us. And just to build on that distance, whether it's artificial and not dynamic, you've also become one of SafeStack's non-executive directors. 
what does that mean on a day-to-day basis for you? I'm on quite a lot of boards of portfolio companies and it's part of my job to be on the board and try and help as much as I can. There are things that I've got experience in, especially in the governance area, that a lot of early stage founders don't have that experience. One of the things I really like to focus on is setting up the way that the board operates and those good governance structures in the first place, building a skills matrix for building the board out over time and how it's going to work most effectively for you. Because I have quite strong feelings that boards can be really helpful, but if they don't work well, that can be really destructive. So I think it's really important to put the right structures in place in the first place. So it's that sort of governance area that I think hopefully I can add some value And obviously, I've had a bit of experience now with a lot of early stage tech startups and some of the the ups and downs. I want to take us back to October 2021 now and talk a bit about that investment round that you raised. And Laura, I'll start with you because I'm really interested to understand a bit more about your drivers for seeking investment at that time. The adjunct to that is why particularly did you go down the international VC route? Was that planned? Or was that a function of other reasons? Before we intentionally started down the path of seeking investment, we were still bringing in, just with a couple of consultants, close to a million dollars a year in revenue and services. It's not a bad business. A lot of people will turn their nose up at a consultancy that goes product, but it actually is the reason that we're able to do what we do because it gave us a lot of lessons learned. We got to know our customers very well. But when we decided, it was because we had a look at what we'd done so far. So we'd got to about 18 customers at the end of the first financial year that came around and about a quarter of a million dollars in ARR. And that was phenomenal. I'll be very candid. We didn't know how to sell SaaS. We'd sold relationship based on consultancy. We, like, this was a whole new game. We'd never done marketing. The whole thing was a wing and a prayer and reading a lot of blog posts and trying it out, a lot of science. But what we realized was it's exhausting when you're bootstrapping off consultancy, particularly because your focus is split in two places. It's a big decision to turn off a lucrative business and say, actually, I'm going to take the investment route. But we really believed that by taking investment, we could accelerate what we'd already seen in those first months and take it global. And if we didn't do that, the chance was that we would do neither well. We would do services poorly and we would do a fairly average, probably quite local product. Now, when we went looking out for investors, it was quite intentional to have an international mix. New Zealand is a wonderful and very rapidly evolving investment ecosystem. But we don't have a lot of experience in the type of company we are. We don't have any in in cybersecurity, for example, because we haven't grown that many products in this space. We were part of the SciRise Accelerator Program in March 2021. So that's a focused cybersecurity accelerator program for companies that already have MVP and are looking to get that initial traction. And that was really important for me, having people around me that had built similar styles of businesses before or in similar sectors. And it introduced me to a lot of people and organizations that could then strengthen that. And so when I came to make the plan for funding in the April and May time, we really started getting into it. I had a really clear idea of what I wanted. I wanted New Zealand funding to ground us because we're a New Zealand company and it's important. This is home and we want to still keep that link. We wanted strategic investment partners who would help us interchannel or in that security domain, which we got through NAV Ventures. 
And then we wanted the investors who were experienced in international growth and SaaS companies. And this is where Gelix was absolutely stand out. As individuals, they're incredible. As a group together, they're phenomenal. From Alan, who's a very, very number-driven analyst, and he is going to absolutely drill you on every single number you write on the spreadsheet, <laughs> through to Andrea and Ian's more practical lived experience uh, style, it felt like a really great combination to take us to the next stage. And that for us was international expansion. And it was making our processes repeatable and turning us into a proper product company, as opposed to a service company who's playing at being a product company. Just building on that, Andrea, Gelix led the round. We've just talked about there were a number of other investors involved. How does this relationship work? To those listening out there, what is the difference between a lead investor and a non-lead? And how does that play out in practice? The key difference is the lead investor is the one that negotiates and agrees the terms of the investment with the founder. The second usual one, although it's not essential is the lead investor would usually write the largest check. In this case, I think Carthona wanted to invest more, but they kept it just under our check size because they've got more funds under management than us, which is trying to be nice to us, which I thought was lovely so that we could still be the proper lead investor. It works really well. And I have to give a lot of credit to Aurora, the Innovation Bay GP venture capital group that New Zealand Trade and Enterprise sponsor. I think it made a really big difference because the first conference was in New Zealand. I think the first three times we did it was in New Zealand. And that made a big difference because it really brought the investors in Australia and New Zealand together and really facilitated building good relationships. We're really lucky. We're not Silicon Valley swimming with sharks with sharp teeth. We invest really early. It's really high risk investment. And you really want to put smaller checks into lots of companies, which means you need to co-invest. I think it's all about leveraging those awesome relationships that we have with each other. It's a privilege to work in the ecosystem. Could I just add a little bit onto that? For us, the leads are grounding investors. They set the cultural tone for our investment as well as the financials. Andrea is the person that I work closest with. That's the most dynamic part of our relationship. And the others each bring something different to the party. It's such a privilege to have that combination of tools now at my disposal, but also have this strong foundation so it doesn't feel split, so I don't feel conflicted. So that lead is there to give you that anchor. When there's a lot of people in the mix, there's a lot of voices. It helps to simplify it from the founder's perspective. I really like that. I haven't heard that before, Laura, about the lead investor setting the cultural tone. That's powerful. Just staying with that, I understand you were originally looking for about 1.5 million and your round was oversubscribed and you eventually closed at 2.3. How did you determine how much you needed to raise and what decision-making did you take to end up where you ended up? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble with this next bit. Apologies to all of the serious business investor types out there because I'm going to just be honest. I find the whole investment space a little bit amusing and strange. We take made up numbers about what it's going to cost to run a business. We take made up numbers about what we're going to achieve. And then we make up a number of how much money it's going to take to get all of those things to happen. And then we present it to a stranger and say, hey, stranger, come play with me and give me all your money, please. Now, I'm a security person. That means by nature, I am very, very risk aware. That's what I do professionally for a living. I go to a party and I go, here's the 17 things that are going to go wrong in this space. I'm not a fun person to have at a party, but it's sometimes necessary. <laughs> now, when you're raising capital as a security person, it's really terrifying because 
you're a naturally very conservative, risk-averse person. When I first started planning my raids, I did it from a very Kiwi and British mindset. Now, I was born in the UK. In the UK, you're taught to apologise for everything and to ask for very little and assume somebody will give you more. In New Zealand, you assume you've got nothing and you learn to make do, and that's where number eight wire comes in. And you put those two things together and you apologise for making the mess of the fence. That's really bad in investing. Just like for those listening who are founders, don't do this. Turn your internal voice into a slightly overconfident American. I love you Americans, don't take any offense to this. But in America, culturally, you grow up to overstate, to be confident and to sell yourself. But that's not a skill set I learned. When I first started raising at 1.5 million, there were still people out there telling me, particularly from British and New Zealand circles, I was raising far too much money and how dare I ask for so much. And then I started speaking to people in the US, in Australia, and they're going, why are you asking for so little? What's that? You need more money than that. You have this conflict emerges. We ended up settling the 2.3 mark with the round. We were oversubscribed to past 3 million at that point, but it wasn't right to take the full amount. That wouldn't have been helpful. What I had to do as a founder was to reconcile, firstly, all of the baggage you get from being you as to where your judgment of numbers comes from with the over-enthusiasm that can come from investment and find a middle ground that I thought gave us goals that were achievable and got us set in the right direction. That was a very complex thing. I need therapy now, but that's okay. It's at least honest. I do want to say something there. Laura said earlier that she can just be who she is and she's authentic about who she is. Apart from what we saw as being this great niche and value proposition commercially, that was a really big part of why we had confidence in her is that she had the confidence just to be who she was and we liked and respected who she was. It's really important to be authentic and you're right about all investors know as early stages that all your forecasts and all that stuff, it is a bit pulled out of thin air a bit. We like to see that it's been thought through. I would caution against overinflating things too much because most of us have been around the block a bit and it just looks silly and completely undermines credibility. While we're on the subject of investment, I just want to mention a great resource that's available for businesses who are about to start their own funding journey. Invested. It's an online tool from the NZT investment team, and it covers everything you need to know about getting ready to raise capital, from doing a competitor analysis to building a financial model and preparing your pitch. It's based on experiences of thousands of other Kiwi companies. And best of all, it's free. So make sure you check it out at www.invested.co.nz. I just want to dig into what you've just said, Andrew, because you're an early stage investor. And as you say, a big part of early stage investment is people. And we've talked about where Laura sits and why you've invested in here. But you just touched on a couple of other things that attracted you to SafeStack. In addition to the people, what were the other things that you really liked about the value prop of SafeStack? That's a really key question. As much as we like Laura, if we didn't think the commercial investment proposition was a good one, we would have said we really like you, but no thanks. Cybersecurity, it's just growing at a rate of knots. The whole market across the board, the competition is ferocious. There seems to be a new startup coming to us a couple of times a week or something. It's just this big incoming waterfall. Unlike all the others, SafeStack was filling an unmet need in the market. There really was this gap. There's this shortage of cybersecurity engineers in the world. At the same time as there's growing need, globally for cybersecurity engineers. 
And what SafeStack does is it upskills existing developers and people working on building that software with the skills to build in security right from the beginning, whereas traditionally a lot of builders actually happen, a lot of investment of time and money and effort and man hours and woman hours, and then they bring in cybersecurity over the top of it, which often means having to rework things and it's expensive and it's an inefficient way of doing it. To be able to build it in very early is helping deal with the problem of the global shortage of cybersecurity engineers. And there just didn't seem to be much competition out there. It seemed to be a fairly green field. So to me, there's this incredible value proposition with a huge global market, so massive, massive potential and a team with deep domain expertise and someone that is also clearly really, really good at looking after her team and growing a team. And that's really important because it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, if you're not going to be able to attract and incentivized and lead an excellent team, then you're not going to be able to manage either. That's the key of the reason that we invested. And you just talked about that thematic approach within that. Is that something that you look to get from a business about why their sector, why they're thematic? Or is that something an investor sort of, they've done their own research, they've got some views on particular areas and they'll bring that thought process to their own investment criteria? In the US, there are a lot of vertical focus funds, ag tech or whatever. We don't have sufficient depth, I don't think, in the startup market here in Australia and New Zealand to have too many of those. I think there's an ag tech fund and there's an impact fund, but there's not a lot of vertical focus funds. The approach from the founders should be make it really easy for the investors to understand And I think this is really important. Always remember who your audience is. The investors, unless they're in that vertical stack, for example, with SafeStack, only invest in cybersecurity and they have deep expertise. Assume they're numpties. Assume they know nothing about it and make it really easy for them to understand the value proposition at a really high level. Be aware that they might not understand short form language and some of the technical terms and just make it really easy to understand very quickly what that gap in the market is and that value proposition because what you're trying to do as a founder when you first connect with um, an investor is hook interest you're not trying to get the sale over the line don't do that because you're almost certainly going to fail but what you're trying to do is hook enough interest with say your deck or your first meeting the investor wants to ask more questions and find out more And when's the best time to approach an investor? How early is too early? And I'm talking to an early stage investor here. Most investors would say, come really early. For me, sometimes I see people that come with just an idea, but I really want to see an MVP. But pre-revenue is fine. But in the absence of revenue, I want to see some really compelling evidence that there is likely to be very strong product market fit. Laura, up to $3 million. You've scaled it back. You've taken 2.3. What has that investment enabled SafeStack to do? We had a really clear mission that we had even in our pitch deck from the initial conversation. So three things we wanted to do with that money. The first, we'd built a platform in three months from duct tape and good intention and put it out into the world and got paying customers onto it, which is awesome, but also a little bit of a fragile foundation. We hired our CTO. We built our second generation platform, which went live in October last year. 
just after the race closed. And we're now, instead of having a fragile stack, we have the ability, and we do, deploy multiple times a day with new features every week. So that's very exciting. And that means that we can meet our customers' needs much more quickly. So that was our first goal. The second was we had early traction. We wanted to capitalize on that. And that means making our sales and marketing more of a function rather than just something that we were experimenting with. And we now have a great marketing team and we have a small and growing sales team. And we're hiring our first role in the US at the moment, which is very exciting. And then finally, we wanted to give our learners and our customers, who are slightly different groups with different interests, the best experience that we could from the first time they encountered us all the way through their learning journeys. To do that, we create a customer success function. And we now have a really great feedback coming through from our learners and our customers. And we measure that really frequently to check that everything's okay. And that gives us this ability to talk to not just who's using the platform, but how are they feeling when they're doing it? And how is that changing over the life of the customer with us? All of this is setting us up to grow quicker, retain our existing customers, which is really important to us, and make sure that we can now push into the US market with confidence. Fantastic. I always like to finish up with some advice, and I'm going to throw this to both of you in, in turn. Laura, I guess you've been through a successful capital raise in a tough market. What's your one piece of advice you'd have for other founders looking to start that investment journey? This piece of advice is for the founders, but it's more logistics than it is finding the investors. You're going to go on your own path with finding investors. That's a personal relationship thing. And very few people are going to be able to tell you which investor is right for you. The thing you can do, though, is treat it like sales. And that sounds really crude and heartless, but you need to. So if you use a CRM like Pipeline or Pipedrive or whatever it's called, or HubSpot or whatever you're using, track it in the same way. So bring your leads in, create relationships and manage them well and track it. Because in a good raise, I think I spoke to probably easily over 80 groups for an initial chat and probably 30 for a follow-up. And then that's a lot of conversations you're having. That's a lot of information you're sharing. That's a lot for you to digest. And you're going to have days where actually you just had a really terrible meeting and you're just like, actually, screw this. I can't do it. It's really hard. And having a good process underneath you and good records and good notes means that firstly, you don't get overwhelmed when you're having a bad day. You can walk away and not forget something. It's all going to be there when you come back. And secondly, you can look at those notes and what you've been doing and ignore that brain weasel that's telling you this all sucks. It's really hard and you shouldn't do it anymore. You can look at that notes and go, actually, no, that was just a bad meeting. Look, all of these other things are happening as well. And those are still strong. So it gives you this nice framework to progress where it's going to be a long and really draining process with a great result at the end. But you've got to survive through that. So all of those tools, all of that structure helps you do it. Fantastic. And Andrea, you've obviously been involved in a lot of tech startups, both in New Zealand and Australia. What's the biggest lesson you've learned about what a startup needs to succeed? Apart from resilience and getting up off the ground when you've fallen over and scun your knees and uh, brushing the dust off and getting on with it, I think it helps have a good cry first and then get up off the ground and keep going. Focus on your team. Laura does a good job of this, but do not ever compromise on anything sub-excellence. I always say triple A caliber, top one or 2% and don't compromise and be creative about ways that you can attract people that might be able to earn a much bigger compensation package from 
a big Google or whatever and just be creative. And part of that is the founder has to be able to engage people with their passion and the possibilities and the potential for the business. So excellence, 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 and be very, very careful about your hiring processes. Don't take shortcuts. Be thoughtful about it. Find out what behavioral questions are and ask those behavioral questions. Be very clear about the type of person and the type of skills that you want, as well as the type of experience and ask your questions and build your recruitment process around that. And you can find out all that stuff online and invest heavily time and effort to get those processes in place. You're a little team usually, and you really don't have the resources to do it. You just desperately want someone to actually help relieve the pressure a bit, but don't compromise on that and get rid of them fast if they're not working. It's better for both parties if it's not going to work out. For example, I remember we invested in a company and the founder's name is Dale. He's founded a company called Flow. And halfway through the first interview, he got me over the line like that when he said, I only employ the top 0.02%. Not 2%, but 0.02%. And I thought he understands how important it is because it doesn't matter how brilliant you are as a founder, you need an excellent team around you. Fantastic. What great advice. Laura, Andrea, thank you so much. I've had a wonderful time talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on here today. Thank you so much for having us. That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.